I get the privilege and the honor to introducing um, one of our friends. Him and his wife are our best friends. So I'm so excited for this man. He can do anything. He leads us in worship every weekend. He can sing, play guitar, and he's super cool. So I'm going to introduce my friend, Phil Schaefer. Thank you, Taylor. That was very kind of you. How are we doing this morning, Church 214? Awesome. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to be a little bit green for, I think, the whole time. That's okay. Um, first off, i got to say that I'm super excited to, to be here. And I know I say it every time. I'm sure I think everybody that preaches says it every time. But it's true. We're not saying it because we don't know what else to say at the start of a message. We say it because it is true. It's such a privilege and honor. And it's super fun to be a part of this team and to be just a small cog in this system that God has put together and just to be along for the ride as he does like life-changing things and miracles happening every single weekend at church 214 amen awesome well the other thing I need to do while I'm on that note is can we just give a huge props to my friend Kit Bolt he, come on come on I because that message last week was what Easily the, my favorite message that he's ever preached. I think it's the best message that he's ever preached. I haven't heard every single message of his life. I still think that's the best one he's ever preached. I don't think anyone could have captured the essence of base camp better than he did. I mean, he had pictures of a base camp up there. He was dressed in camo, and his message was so well thought out, so thoughtful, capturing this idea of starting at this base camp and venturing out into the unknown. So please, can we just, one more time, can we honor my friend <laughs> Kip Bolt? Man, I love that message. Thank you, buddy. Um, as I was preparing for this message, w the, really the last week of kind of rehearsing, this one word kind of kept popping out to me, and it really doesn't have a direct relation to my message, um, and it's the word honesty. And I think that if you're going to get anything out of this message especially today, or any message at this church, or it doesn't even have to be this church, any church, if you can't be honest with yourself, if you can't be honest with each other, your close friends, your brothers and sisters, if you can't be honest with God, this whole thing that we're doing here, it's only going to make so much impact on your life. The more honesty you can bring to the table, the more impact will, will happen in your life. And so if you don't mind, I'm kind of unofficially, without the approval of the rest of the leadership team, instituting um, an unwritten honesty policy. And in the spirit of that honesty policy, I would like to go first, if that's okay. While, and while I'm, do, while I'm sharing, why don't you go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Um, if you remember my last message, it was in the Verses series in Proverbs. It was called uh, Pride versus Humility. And I shared in the beginning of that message about how really the last 10 years of my life, I had been actively battling pride in my life, experiencing victory over that pride, replacing it with humility only by the grace of God and only with the help of so and support of amazing people in my life. Uh, the same cannot be said, to be honest, about mercy. And if you haven't figured out where we're at in the Beatitudes yet, we're going to be in Matthew 5, chapter 7, where it talks about mercy I've really only been working on mercy, begrudgingly, I might add, <laughs> to be honest, uh, for the last three years, and it's really since I married my beautiful wife, Becca, and uh, God's been working on me in two very distinct ways. One, marriage in general amplifies 
our character flaws, the gaps in our character. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, thank you. Um, so, so marriage in general, God has shown me through marriage in general that, hey, Phil, you, uh, you got a marriage, a marriage mercy, mercy gap. You're not a very merciful person. You need to work on this. Okay, God, thanks. That feels great. The other reason is um, my wife is, I believe my wife is a much more merciful person than I am. And so on a daily basis, it's kind of a double whammy of marriage in general, plus I married a more merciful person. And God's just like, hey, you're not very merciful. You need to work on this. And then, as luck would have it, not luck, God's will would have it, I get asked to preach about mercy. And so for the last eight or nine weeks, I've been faced with it really from three angles now, studying mercy in depth and realizing that, man, uh, I got to work on this. So I'm not standing up here today as an expert in mercy at all. Um, Like I said, I'm still working on being merciful, and honestly, I am still begrudgingly working on it. Okay, seriously, like my heart, I just, I am not bent this way. But that's not an excuse. I need to work on it, and so do you. And so if we can be honest with each other today, how many people want mercy? Okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up only if you think it's easy to be merciful. Good. There you go. Keaton thinks it's easy to be merciful. That's awesome, dude. Are you stretching? Awesome. That's good. That's good. Hey, that's good, man. That's good. <laughs> so we're going to continue our series in base camp. It's week five, about half, a little past halfway through. And let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, I want to camp on this word blessed because uh, Chris did a great job in week one telling us, setting us up for success for the rest of the series, telling us about this word blessed. Every single beatitude starts with that word, and we need to really understand what that word means. So I kind of want to do a refresher on that so as we go through the rest of the series, we remember what exactly it is that we're getting out of this. So Chris said a couple of things when he talked about being blessed. He said that he started with a Greek word, makarios, which is the Greek word used for blessed, And that word describes when God extends his benefits to us. I love that. And it also describes a believer's fortunate position. I also love that. From receiving God's favor. A believer's fortunate position from receiving God's favor. And I wanted to dig into this too, and I found another definition. Not that Chris's isn't as bad or incomplete, but I found another definition that I think adds so much to the conversation To be blessed means that we have more than a temporary feeling of happiness or satisfaction. Does anybody else want more than a temporary feeling of happiness or satisfaction? And it is a state of well-being in relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus. Man, that's what I want. Now, when we study the Bible, when we study anything, but when we study, especially when we study the Bible, we have to study what it says very carefully. And my friend Heidi points this out a lot. We also have to study what it does not say. Okay, we have to study what it says, but we also have to study what it does not say. The, both Chris's definition of b- being blessed and my definition, notice what they don't say. They do not say that God will extend, and especially, hold on, especially in the context of that beatitude, blessed are the merciful, okay? 
Notice what it does not say. It, it does not say that God will extend to you one blessing unit of equal or lesser value in the event that you produce one good work unit, or for this week, one mercy unit. That's not what it says. It simply says, what is it when God extends his benefits? The end. Or a state of well-being in relationship to God. The end. Okay, there aren't conditions attached to that. So in a way, in a way, both of these definitions imply that we didn't really deserve any of this in the first place. In fact, we deserved much, 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 much worse, right? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God didn't stop there. God did not stop at the wages of sin is death. And that's where mercy enters the conversation. The good news is that God didn't stop there. And mercy is mentioned in the Bible 454 times. So it must be important. It, we need to study it. God wants us to understand mercy, but he doesn't want to just any old mercy. He wants us to understand his mercy. So let's talk about that for a second. What about, th- what's this mercy? What does the world tell us about mercy? And you could probably find a thousand definitions if you Google it, but the world's definition of mercy is basically wrapped up into this statement. Not receiving a punishment that we rightfully deserve. It's pretty simple. Now, the, the image that comes to my mind when I think about that kind of mercy is like a courtroom. A judge pardons a criminal. Or a governor or president, sometimes they do that towards the end of their, um, towards the end of their terms for whatever reason. Or uh, a little more cinematic version would be like a Roman emperor in the Colosseum, he's sitting there on his throne, and there's a fight with gladiators and slaves and maybe even some Christians getting persecuted, and he's sitting up there on his throne at the end of the fight, and he gets to decide mercy or death. In any one of those cases, it's mostly arbitrary, mostly devoid of any sort of emotion, mostly devoid of any sort of real motivation other than these people that pardon criminals have the power to do it, so they do it. That's the world's definition of mercy. That's not God's definition of mercy. So what does God say about mercy? Well, if you grew up in the church like me, I've been in church for 27 years. In case you're wondering, I'm also 27 years old. So I've been in church my whole life. The only definition of mercy that I've ever heard is the same exact definition of mercy that the world gives us. And I'm not trying to knock my upbringing. I'm not trying to knock uh, any churches that I've uh, grown up in the past with. And it's not wrong. Okay, that, that, is, that is what's happening when we receive mercy. But that is an incomplete definition. It's an incomplete definition. So let's, let's keep going. What, is, what does that mean? Well, Chris taught you a little bit of Greek, so I'm going to teach you some Greek. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Greek word for mercy is the word eleos. Say that with me. One, two, three. Eleos. Good. One more time. Elias. It's a beautiful word. Greek is a much more beautiful language than English is, I think. And it's going to get a little bit more beautiful, a lot more beautiful when I tell you what it really means. Remember the definition that I gave for mercy, the world's definition for mercy. 
Now listen to this and try to hear how different it sounds. That word in the Greek literally means kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and the afflicted. Joined with a desire to help them. Kindness or, you guys didn't hear that. Kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and the afflicted joined with a desire to help them. God's mercy isn't just mercy. It's mercy and love. Mercy and love are inseparable in God's universe. It says it right here. Here's what this is also saying. Because again, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. That's a message to Christians. Okay. What is a Christian? Well, we're all born in sin, so we're all guilty of sin. We have an unpayable debt that, we can't, that only God can wipe away. When we receive God's mercy, when we are saved, we are no longer guilty in his sight by the blood of Jesus, correct? Are we, are we, are we tracking so far? Okay. But we still need mercy every single day, don't we? Because we still sin. So our identity is not wrapped up in guilt anymore when we're saved. Our identity is wrapped up in grace when we're saved. But so it's in the definition, you guys. When, when after we become his children, God still gives us mercy, and he doesn't look at us as guilty anymore. He looks on us as just miserable and afflicted, and he just wants to help us. That's, I, that's starting to change some, that needs to change how you look at God today. He is not a Roman emperor up on his throne giving you mercy or death. He sees you as his child, miserable and afflicted, and he just wants to help you. Mercy and love. And how do I know? I can go, it's all over scripture. Let's go to Romans 12, 8. The very end of the verse, Paul is telling the Romans, and he's telling us to do acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Or how about David in Psalm 40, 11, he says, he's talking to God, he's saying, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Psalm 40, 11 is changing some lives in this room too, I think. You will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And the writer of Lamentations, a lot of us know this verse, Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. It's all over Scripture, mercy and love. They're inseparable. Okay, so if we look, again, if we look back at the world's definition of mercy, because it's not totally wrong, mercy is only needed when we're guilty, right? And we're all guilty. But the good thing is, remember, God didn't stop. God didn't stop at the wages of sin is death. Mercy equals freedom. Mercy is only needed when we're guilty, and we're all guilty, but mercy also equals freedom. So that's mercy, but what does it mean to be merciful? Because we can't be blessed with mercy unless we are merciful people. And again, as I was studying for this message, this, it was obvious where I had to go with this. I felt like I needed an illustration here or a story at some point, and it was very, very obvious to me. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. Go ahead and turn there. This is the parable of the debtor. 
Jesus has just finished telling Peter that he needs to forgive his brother 490 times. We're not going to go in that part. We don't have enough time to go into all that because that's, that's, awesome. that's another awesome sermon for another day. But let's start in verse 23. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now let's stop right there really quick. What is a talent? Because this is very important for how huge the story ends up being. What is a talent? A talent is a unit of money used back in the time when the New Testament was written. It was not a physical unit of money. It was not a coin or a banknote of some kind. It was a very large sum of money, um, a unit of money that was used to help make the math a little bit easier. And I'll prove to you why here in a second because can't preach a sermon by Phil Schaefer and not have some math in it. <coughs> um, so a talent was used to, it was roughly equal to 20 years wages for a common laborer. 20 years wages for a common laborer. So let's modernize this a little bit because, you know, it's 2015. Life's a little bit different now than it was back then. Minimum wage in the state of Illinois, according to Google a couple weeks ago, 8.25 an hour. I've had several manual labor jobs. I started at minimum wage. So let's just use 8.25 an hour. Now let's very conservatively estimate that this manual labor is going to work 2,000 hours a year. Most manual labor jobs are 10 and 12 and 15 hour days, so they're well exceeding 2,000 hours a year. But let's just be conservative because it's not going to matter in the end. The numbers get very big, very fast. So 825 an hour, 2,000 hours a year, that's $16,500 a year before taxes, but we're not going to deal with the taxes because, again, it's not going to matter. I promise you this. Remember, one talent equals 20 years. This guy owed 10,000 talents, so he equaled two, he owed 200,000 years wages. At 825 an hour, don't worry, I did the math for you, 3.3 billion with a B. $3.3 billion. Can you imagine even 1% interest on that? How many, how many people in here, most of you, if you, have, if you have a house, you know what debt is like. You have a mortgage, okay, or car payments or credit cards, whatever it is. Nobody here has $3.3 billion in debt. That's an unpayable debt. That's crippling debt. Donald Trump would have a hard time finding out how to pay $3.3 billion in debt. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, whatever, $3.3 billion with interest. That's, a, that's an unpayable debt. Notice how the parallel with our sin is an unpayable debt. We'll get back to that. Let's keep going. $3.3 billion. Don't forget that number. And, and since he could not pay, verse 25, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So not only, not only does he have a $3.3 billion debt hanging over his head, now he has to go to be a slave for the rest of his life with his wife and his children, and he loses all of his possessions forever. Life is officially over for this guy. It's over. But what happens? Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. That is insane. He owes 200,000 years wages and we don't know from the parable 
because it's a fictional story, how old the guy is, but we're all pretty sure that he's not going to live long enough to pay off 200,000 years wages, right? So it makes no sense why he would even ask for new, no time. Like, I just need more time. I just need more time. No, you don't need more time. You need a miracle. We don't need more time on this earth to figure things out. We need a miracle. Only Jesus can be that miracle for you. But look what happens. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Notice how the king did not grant the servant's request. The servant asked for more time to pay an unpayable debt, and the king said, that's okay. Your debt is forgiven. That's God's economy. He didn't listen to the servant. He could have given him more time, but he went way beyond that and said, your debt's forgiven. That's freedom. Mercy is only needed when you're guilty, and that guy was super guilty by the world's standards, and he needed an extra dose of mercy, and he got it. And don't, go, go find him and ask him if he didn't feel like he was freed in that moment. That was freedom for him. He was going to be a slave. Not only was there financial freedom, there was physical freedom for him and his family. A second chance at life, he experienced freedom that day when he experienced mercy. But what does he do with it? Verse 28, but when the same servant went out, he had just had all that awesome stuff happen to him. He walks out the door and he forgets all of it. He went and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Really quick, 100 denarii is 20 weeks wages at 8.25 an hour. That's $6,600. 3.3 billion, 6,600 way below the floor. Like, that's doable. Now, none of us in here are going to sign up for an extra $6,600 debt, but that's, that's doable. I mean, if you ask for more time on that one, you'll get through it, okay? And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison. Now, this isn't just prison. This is debtor's prison. Back then, this was some weird way of trying to get people to pay debts, and I never understood it because if the guy is in prison, he can't work even his regular job or anything extra to pay off the money, the 6600 So I don't know how the first servant's going to get any money if the guy is in debtor's prison. Doesn't make a lot of sense. But that's where he decided to take this thing. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master what had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you. Put yourself, put yourself in, your, in the servant's shoes and think about your sin, not the 3.3 billion. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Isn't that all we need to do to get Jesus to save us from our sins? The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. That happened right here, except it was just money. You pleaded with me, and I forgave you the debt. Every Christ follower in here did the exact same thing. And should you, verse 33, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Matthew 5, 7, anybody? It's kind of the negative statement of the same thing. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Debtor's prison for the guy that owes $3.3 billion, 200,000 years wages. He's never getting out. 
so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, mercy is only needed when you're guilty. And we're all guilty. But mercy equals freedom. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. Okay, Phil, I understand mercy, I think, and I understand being merciful, I think. Uh, but that was Jesus being perfectly merciful, and I know I'm not going to be perfectly merciful. So how do I, how is that going to work? How do I, what do I do? Do I need to be merciful all the time to be considered merciful and therefore get the blessing of mercy? The short answer is no, because God isn't always merciful either, at least as we perceive mercy. God is a merciful God, he's a loving God, and he's a just God. These are all, and there's many other things, but those three are the ones we're talking about today. Those are all part of his character, and he cannot suppress one at the expense of the others. He is always all three of those at the same time. So every time he makes an action, it always has mercy, it always has justice, and it always has love somewhere in there. We as humans cannot see the whole picture, and so sometimes when he acts, we can only see the mercy part of it, or the justice part of it, or the loving part of it. So, so as, I, as I move forward, I'm going to say things like mercy versus justice, but just keep in mind that God doesn't do one or the other. He does both always. We can only perceive usually one or the other. So in human terms, God doesn't always show mercy either. Sometimes he shows justice. And God's will for us is that we deliver a mix of mercy and justice too. And I think that, uh, so John Piper wrote a sermon called Blessed Are the Merciful on Matthew 5-7 way back in 1986, and he had some very helpful examples of this balancing act that we're supposed to play with mercy and justice, and so I just, I stole them, and they're right here. I hope they're as helpful to you as they are for me. So the, number one, a biblical parent will usually follow the wisdom that sparing the rod spoils the child. Proverbs 13.24, Ephesians 6.4. But there will be times when a child's fault will be forgiven without punishment to teach the meaning of mercy and to woo the child to Christ. Those of you that have children in the room, you probably understand this very well, don't you? Does anybody, does any, is anybody, does anybody helped by that? I, I'm not even a dad yet, and I'm, I'm going to remember that. <laughs> A biblical employer, number two, a biblical employer will usually pay a fair wage and insist on good workmanship, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. But there will be times when he will pay more than a person's work deserves and go an extra mile with a sick or aging or distressed or inadequately trained worker. Those of you that have people that report to you at work, you understand that too. One more, and a biblical church leader will call public sin in the church to account and exercise discipline and even exclusion from the fellowship, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. But we'll also remember the parable of the wheat and the tares that teaches patience with the imperfection of the church till the end of the age, Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Okay, that's great. That's great, Phil. So thanks for that, but how do I know when to show mercy versus justice? And it sounds like I need to have a mixture of the two, and how do I know if it's 30% mercy and 70% justice or 60-40? Or Okay, don't sweat it. <laughs> don't sweat it. Because remember, if, if, if you're in that place, like, hey, we love you, 
Here's how I would encourage you this morning. Hebrews 4.16, it says, Let us then draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You've got to ask. If you're struggling, you've got to ask for help. The people around you, and especially for your Heavenly Father who can do anything. And I think that as we, so as Christ followers, we still receive mercy every single day. We have to. We wouldn't make it. <laughs> so as we receive more and more mercy every day, and as we become more and more aware of that mercy that we're receiving every single day, we are going to improve at giving it out in general and also knowing when to give it out. So dwell on the mercy <laughs> that you receive every day. Try to find joy. Try to find truth in your life. Try to find mercy. Try to find all these things, but try to find the mercy that God gives you every single day. And you're going to get way better at knowing when to be merciful to other people. Again, as I said before, we have to look at what the, so don't sweat it. Look at what the Bible says versus what it does not say. Matthew 5, 7, one more time, blessed are the merciful. It does not say, blessed are those that know exactly when to choose mercy versus justice. Now, regardless, if we're going to be effective at dealing out mercy and justice or a mixture of the two, we're obviously going to need some wisdom with that. Let me ask you this. How wise would we be or how effective would we be at dealing out mercy versus justice or a mixture of the two if we were also at the same time poor in spirit like Chris talked about? or mourning over our own sin, like Heidi talked about. Or striving to do what's right in meekness, like Mike talked about. Or hungry and thirsting for righteousness, like Kip talked about. Or perceiving the sorrow of others, the miserable and the afflicted, like I'm talking about. Or being pure in heart, like we're going to talk about next week. Or striving for peace, like a peacemaker the week after. You see, all the Beatitudes are connected. It's tough to have one without the others. And sometimes meekness means justice. Sometimes righteousness means justice. Sometimes purity in heart means justice. Sometimes peace means justice. And sometimes all of those things mean mercy too. Will you fail? Of, of course you will. But you will learn, and the Holy Spirit will be there every step of the way to make sure that you do. Remember Philippians 1.6 says, he who started a good work and you will complete it. Let's go a little bit further. Listen to James. Let's go to James 2.13. This is so huge, you guys. Listen to James 2.13. It's very similar to Matthew 5.7. For judgment is without mercy on the one who has shown no mercy. Doesn't that sound like the beatitude? Blessed are the merciful. But James doesn't stop there. He adds this sentence. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, sometimes people take this out of context to mean that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. And that is true, but that's not what this is talking about here. Matthew 5, 7, one more time. What does the Bible say? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy. Your mercy triumphs over judgment. Your mercy triumphs over judgment. Your mercy triumphs over judgment. If, if, if we got, guys, if we are 
Christ followers, if we're going to call ourselves Christ followers, we need to become more and more like Jesus, right? Okay. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. We lean on the perfection of Jesus to save us from our sins, and that leads to genuine faith in Jesus, and that genuine faith leads to progress. So for those of us that have been saved, or some of you need to hear received mercy, saved, received mercy, they're the same thing, we need to be displaying more and more evidence of a merciful life. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That means that the mercy we show others, we're Christ followers, the mercy we show others triumphs over the judgment that we would have received from God had we not shown mercy. Now let's be careful here. Failure to show mercy in this instance or that instance does not mean you lose your salvation, nor does showing mercy every single day in and of itself save you. Okay? So again, be careful what I'm saying versus what I'm not saying. That being said, an outflowing of mercy from us is the chief evidence of mercy flowing in from God. If there's nothing flowing out, there's probably nothing flowing in. Okay? And so... I would argue that a person completely devoid of mercy, whether they call themselves a Christ follower or not, was never saved in the first place. Remember, James says later, four verses later, James chapter 2, verse 17, faith without works is dead. Receiving God's mercy does save you and should compel you then to show mercy to others. That's Matthew 5, 7. Look, and I'm not the judge, okay? I am not here this morning to tell you you're saved, you're not. You're saved, you're not. I don't know. God's the judge. He knows. It's not whether I believe you're merciful or not. It's whether he believes you're merciful or not. As we read through Scripture, it would be very difficult to make the case that a true Christ follower can be devoid of mercy. Again, I can't make that call. Only God can. It would be very difficult to prove that biblically. So we've talked about what it means to be blessed, and we've talked about mercy and what it means to be merciful and when to be merciful. So as I wrap up here, I just want to talk about one more thing, and it's the blessing of mercy for us and for others. 1 Timothy 1.16, this verse changed my life this week. I've read it many times before, and for whatever reason, I just didn't, to be honest, I just didn't grasp what it meant. Paul says to Timothy, but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. There's a lot going on there. Did anyone just catch what that, the implications of that verse? But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Here's what this means. We, as Christ followers, still need mercy every single day, right? Amen, anyone? Okay. The mercy that we receive from God is not just for us. God does that 
as an example to other people so they can see the evidence of God's mercy in our life and they're drawn to him. Some people will be, by the time you leave this earth, some people will have been saved simply because you were faithful to God, received the mercy from him on a daily basis. They saw that and they wanted the mercy that you received. Okay, I, I've never, I did not know that that was one of the options for saving people, just receiving mercy and they, it happens. That's God's economy. Here's what this also means. That hardship you're going through, it's not in vain. You know why? Because it's not just for you. It's not just for you. Yes, of course, when we're going through a hardship, God is going to give us mercy to drag us through that hardship. And at the end of that hardship, our strength will be greater than what it was before. Our faith will be greater than it was before. People will see that and be drawn to that because they're going to say, man, I couldn't have made it through that. What, what do you have? What's going on with you that you could just, you could get through that? Your hardship is not in vain because your hardship isn't just for you. The mercy that you receive to get through every single hardship also isn't for you. It's for other people too. That's, guys, man, maybe I'm the only one. That was crazy when I read that. That's crazy. In Ephesians 2.4, my favorite verse about mercy in the entire Bible, the NLT just nails this. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. The blessing of mercy for us and for others. Mercy isn't just getting out of a punishment that you rightfully deserve. It's way, way, way beyond that. You see, you didn't save you. God saved you. God chose us, which means he chose to give us mercy. Isn't that indescribable, you guys? The band's going to come up, and, and we're going to play one more song. Well, they are. I'm not playing this weekend, thankfully. <laughs> When you start to read about God's mercy, not the world's mercy, but God's mercy, and really dig down in the Word, you discover that there is some kind of love that we cannot comprehend that would grant us mercy like that. And when I dwell on that mercy that God has shown me, I can't help but give Him praise. You see, mercy is only needed when you're guilty. And we're all guilty. But God didn't stop there. Mercy equals freedom. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. Your perfect mercy. Mercy that doesn't just get us out of a punishment that we rightfully deserved, but a mercy that's kindness and goodwill 
towards us, your children, who are at times miserable and afflicted. Joined with your love, your desire, your unending desire to just help us. That's life-changing mercy. God, help us to see that mercy at work every single day in our lives. The mercy didn't stop when we got saved, when you saved us. The mercy just kept right on increasing from there day after day. God, help us to understand that our hardship isn't just for us. God, help us to understand that the mercy we receive isn't selfishly, it's not just to get us through that hardship. It's so that you can display your perfect patience with this miserable and afflicted people that you created and say no to you every single day. And you just keep coming back and keep coming back and keep showing mercy and keep showing mercy. Because your mercies never come to an end. Your mercy, your love, and your faithfulness will ever preserve us. So God, we worship you now because of that great mercy and love that are inseparable and that sustain us every single day until you take us home. In Jesus' name, amen.